0: And amen. You may be seated, church. It is so good to be with you on this this Lord's Day together. And um, along with the rest of you, I'm so grateful for our friends at CPC. They've been a blessing to me, certainly over the years. I know they've been a blessing to you, and we're so grateful they're here with us this morning. Uh, One more announcement. Remember, next Sunday is Reformation Sunday. In the morning, we'll be singing some of our favorite Reformation hymns, and it'll be led by our wonderful choir and our musicians and later that night too, we'll be having a special service with our brothers and sisters from, uh, from Independent Pres Here in the evening, we'll be sharing the cup together and we'll be sitting under uh, Sean Lucas's preaching. And so I hope you join us for that celebration. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, for this Sunday morning, I figured we might have a little foretaste of that celebration by looking at one of the t- t- key texts of the Reformation itself, Romans chapter 1. Uh, Verses 16 through 17. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to be looking at starting at verse 14, but we'll be paying uh, special attention to those last two verses. Romans itself, as a book, as I'm sure is the case for you, is one of my favorite books in the Bible. As John Calvin said, Romans is the doorway to the treasure of all Scripture. Um, Augustine's study through the entirety of the 16 chapters led to his conversion, but it was our two verses this morning that led to the actual conversion of Martin Luther and therefore started the flame of the reformation itself. Now, why is that? I like what James Boyce said. He said, these verses are the most important verses in all of literature for not only do they summarize the theme of Paul's magnum opus, but they are in themselves the essence of Christianity And why are verses 16 through 17 the essence of Christianity? Because they summarize the gospel. The gospel message which has the power to save sinners and to turn this world upside down. Now, I know most of us in this room have been coming to this church for many years. and We've heard the gospel said and retold and retelled and all of our other things that we say here over and over again. But it's in that retelling of the gospel over and over that we often run the danger of missing the wonder of it, isn't it? And so the apostle Paul's goal for us this morning, his desire, my desire, is that each and every one of us would be reawakened to the power of the gospel, that we might never grow ashamed of it, but rather boast in it. So let us read it together, starting at verse 14, chapter one. Hear the word of God. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, Both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, again, I join Pastor David in prayer, thanking you that you have gathered us here as your children, as your people. That not only might we delight in your presence and praise you, being led by our our amazing choir, but also that we might feast upon your life-giving word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to us, that we wouldn't just be a people informed, but transformed by this life giving word. We love you, Father. Speak to us, for your servants listen. We pray all of this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Paul begins this chapter, um, if you start at verse 1, by describing his longing to go to Rome and his great desire to preach the gospel to everyone who had ears. Great desire to preach the gospel. Now, according to Paul, the gospel is not good advice. It's not a mere philosophy. It is not a to-do list. Many celebrity pastors and Christian radio have turned the gospel into an adjective today. Paul says, no, sir, the gospel is the good news. It is a story, a good news account of a historical reality that's taken place that was foretold in the Old Testament and realized in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God became man, died on the cross, and rose three days later. This is not human invention. It's not one story among many in the smorgasbord of human religion, but this is, comes to us through divine revelation. That God became man, died on a cross, and rose three days later. Paul says, this is the news that has changed the world. It's worthy of his life, and it is worthy of our life. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having said that, I do find it interesting, don't you, that Paul begins his description of this amazing, amazing good news story with that phrase, for I am not ashamed of it. Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, who said anything about being ashamed, Paul? I mean, you just just whipped that out there. Who said that you were ashamed of the gospel? Why does he say that? Well, to be sure, it is a literary technique. It's two negatives that, that affirm a positive. I am not ashamed means I very much boast in the gospel. All right? And if you know Paul, if you know his life story, he was a man that truly boasted in the gospel. What does it mean to boast? layman? it just means to, you know, I'm really proud of something. I find my joy in it. I rejoice in it. And I want everybody else to know why, why I am proud of this thing that I'm proud of. You just want everybody to join in on your, on your rejoicing. So grandparents, you know what it means to boast in your grandchildren. My kids, grandparents, all they want for Christmas are pictures of their grandbabies. That's it. It's an easy Christmas this year. All they want are pictures of their grandbabies to show all of their friends how precious and perfect their grandbabies are. And I expect grandparents to hear the same way. Sports fans, we know how to rejoice and boast in our teams when they're doing well. And yes, as David said, I'm an Ole Miss fan. I don't have much reason to rejoice or boast this morning. But David's a Tennessee fan, and he's been boasting enough for all of us. You know, (laughs) y'all have had 20 years of not boasting pent up, and now you've just released it all for all of us. (laughs) Paul was a man in the truest sense, in the holiest sense, boasted. And he boasted in the gospel. In a real sense, he took up that Jeremiah 9 definition of boasting and verse 23 through 24, which says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the world. For in these things I delight. That was Paul. He wanted everybody to draw their attention, not to himself, but how great God is. And, and of all the great things that God has done. And for everybody who's a, uh, been a saved by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're the same way. You want to draw attention to God and the great things that God has done. And you want everybody to know how powerful and great the gospel is. But as John Stott says, even still, the mere fact that, that Paul used that phrase... For I am not ashamed of the gospel; it wasn't just a literary technique, but it was a moment of vulnerability, where he's revealing to us that him too, Paul, was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. The ap- apostle Paul being ashamed of the gospel—you say, really? Yeah, and here's why: he's a guy, he's a man, a normal man, a sinner. A redeemed sinner, but a sinner nonetheless. And just like the rest of us, he was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. When Paul tells us things like the, um, the religious leaders of his day, they criticized him for his weak gospel. Or when the who's who of the Greco-Roman world criticized him and this gospel for being foolish. Don't think for a second that Paul, a mere man, did not feel weak and foolish in front of those mighty and powerful people. And he felt tempted to shy away from this weak and foolish gospel in the world's eyes. And brothers and sisters, aren't we the same way? I mean, I'm tempted to be ashamed of the gospel all the time. And I'm sure you are too. One of the chief ways that we're usually tempted to be ashamed of the gospels when we have the opportunity to share the gospel, but don't because we're afraid. It does not matter if you're a gifted evangelist, even the greatest evangelist, the apostle Paul, can be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel out of fear. Fearful one, coming across as foolish, admitting to our friends that we believe in these miraculous things, or because we're afraid of, of being offensive. Gospel is great news, but there are, there are strands of bad news in the gospel. If you're going to tell the full gospel, you've got to tell the bad news. And, and no one wants to be offensive in this day and age, and so we keep our mouths shut. There's other ways we can be ashamed of the gospel. We can be ashamed of the gospel when we per, pretend that or think or live or act as if our primary identity is in, I don't know, East Memphis rather than heaven where the priorities of our social circles or our political affiliations outweigh or trump our gospel priorities. Sometimes we're ashamed of the gospel when we feel as if the gospel is too weak to do anything about the problems of the world and it's too weak to do anything about the problems of our own heart. Of course, we all are tempted to feel that way sometimes. So Paul, in verse 16, he's preaching to himself, I think, as much as he's preaching to us. And he's saying, second presers, I get it. I'm not perfect. I've been there. I get it. But I just want you to know, no matter what the Judaizers say, no matter what the Greeks say, no matter what the fears of your own heart say, I want you to know that I've come to a place where I am not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, I am boasting in the gospel. I am eager in the gospel. I am obligated to share this gospel. It is the tune of my heart. It is my joy and glory. I want you to know that I have tremendous reasons to boast in this gospel, to make sure everybody else knows about this gospel. And second praise, you have tremendous reasons too. And so my hope for us this morning as we spur each other on to take on our mantle, our our mission statement as second president is to retell the gospel to each other in the lost world and to apply the gospel in our community and around this world that we would re- be reminded of every tremendous reasons that we have to do so. There's five. We're going to go through them pretty quickly. The first one, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. What does that word power mean? To nutshell it, it means the ability to get things done. That's what it means. It's one thing to have good intentions. It's quite another thing to have the ability to accomplish those good things which you intend. And in one sense, that's what makes God, God, right? Because God is the, he is the omnipotent sovereign who is in power and in control over all things. And it's for that reason, Paul says, no, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Now, here's a really cool thing. In your Sunday school class, do a word association with that word gospel. When you say that word gospel, it's the first word that comes to your mind. Most of us would have words like God's love or mercy or grace, and we would not be wrong in associating those words with the gospel. But isn't it interesting that the first word that comes to the apostle Paul's mind, when he hears that word gospel is power? When's the last time we said power? This is the first word when we think about when we think that word gospel. What's even more interesting is how Paul describes this gospel power. He does not say that the gospel demonstrates God's power. He does not say that the gospel communicates God's power. What does he say? He says that the gospel itself is the power of God. Isn't that wild to think about? What he is saying is that the gospel, verses 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God in speech form. The gospel is good news. It is a good news story. It's a historical event. But it's not just that. It is power. It is God's power. And so here's the Apostle Paul t- teaching this church in Rome, teaching us. He's like, guys, listen, I know that this world has powerful things in it. Rome was powerful. They preached peace, but they, but they laid desert wastelands wherever they went. They were destructive people. I know that there's... there's Powers and principalities in your, word, in your world now that are that are evil and are greater than you. I know that the enemies of the church are powerful. I know the sin in your own heart is powerful. I know the fears in your own heart are powerful. But I want you to know in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a new and better power has been unleashed upon the world. And this power, this God power in the gospel has the power to transform, the power to lift up, And the power to make new. And Paul says whenever this gospel is proclaimed and read and understood, that power is released out into the world. Paul says, I've experienced this for myself. I was a murderer. And he's seen this demonstrated in every city that he went to that was turned upside down, as Paul tells us, or as Luke tells us in Acts, when the gospel was faithfully preached. And so Paul is saying, no, I'm not ashamed of this. I mean, I don't care what people say about me. You shouldn't care what people say about you. I don't care what people say about this gospel, if it's foolish or not. Because Paul knew the truth. The message of the bloody cross and the empty tomb is a stick of dynamite in your hands. Do you know why that the historical narrative in scripture, all of them, gives so little verses, so little space to kings and Caesars and pharaohs? And so much space, so many verses to prophets that nobody liked, shepherds and fishermen. Do you know why? Because in true reality, in God's economy, the most important and the most powerful people in this world are those who herald, herald the gospel. Because when it's proclaimed, it never can never, will never return void. Paul says, no, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Secondly, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel because this power, it's not aimless. It's purposeful. This is what he says. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. It's not this random power, but it's the power of God for salvation. What is salvation? It means to be delivered from or rescued from something. So church, as Christians, what do we know the answer to be that every single person in every place and every time needs to be delivered from? If you don't know, let the angel of the Lord tell you, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. That is our chief problem that God sends help for. The power of God for salvation from our sins. Now, this is one of those areas that we might grow tempted to become ashamed of the gospel, right? Because no one one likes to be called a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner, and I don't like to be called one. You know, you don't have to keep reminding me, you know, Sarah. (laughs) no No one likes to be called a sinner. We don't even like that word sin, right? In this day and age, we've adopted synonyms for it because we're so afraid of it. We call sins mistakes or, or sins. Um, I don't know. What's another synonym for it? Uh, that's my brokenness. <laughs> we do not even like the, the sound of that word on our lips. And from the get-go, from the fall of mankind, nobody has looked towards themselves saying, you know what? I'm the problem. They've always looked outward saying, say, no, those people are the problem or that political party is the problem. But church, isn't it true that if our main problem was, was government, God would have sent the best president ever. Of course, he would. God's good. He loves his people. He's going to provide for us. If that was our main problem, that's what he would have sent. If the economy is our main problem, he would have sent the greatest economist you can imagine. If your greatest problem right now was needing a bigger house with a decent mortgage, which I know is a lot of our problems, if that was our main problem, he would have sent the world's greatest realtor. But, church, that's not the main problem. Paul says sin is the main problem, and in God's grace, he sends a savior. Isn't it good news that God does not send to us what we wanted, but rather sent us what we needed? That's the good news. And to be sure, this sin problem is a big problem. It has infected every person. It has broken every person. It has, it has corrupted every policy, every structure, every place since the fall. And it's so powerful, no one man and no one policy can do anything about it But. Paul says the good news is that God can do something about it. And God has done something about it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is mighty to say, this is what he declares in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. This is the good news that regardless if they know it or not, the world is in desperate need to hear is what Paul says. And to be sure we don't have a truncated view of what this gospel salvation is in case someone asks us. Just, just, just imagine, if you're in Jesus Christ, we're going to talk about this in a moment, but if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this means that if you're in Christ, Jesus has saved you already from the guilt of sin. That's your justification. If you love the Lord, if you're in Jesus Christ, if you have faith in him, he is saving you from the power of sin. That's your sanctification day by day in the, in the Holy Spirit. He's transforming you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's also given us the promise that one day soon he will deliver us from the presence of sin, that will be our glorifi- glorification. He is so mighty to save, he saves us in three time tenses. All of your sins, past, present, and future are dealt with in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's, that's only the half of it. okay? Because Jesus doesn't only save us from something, he also saves us for something. As Protestants, sometimes we only focus on the from and it is a good from that he's delivered us from. He's delivered us from sin and Satan and death, absolutely. But that's only half of it. He's also saved us for something, church. He's saved us for abundant life in him. That we might actually experience divine joy. His joy, he tells us in John 15. That we might have an abundant life where we're not only forgiven, but forever loved by God. Where we might actually tangibly experience that and know that, that, to know that we haven't just been broken out of prison, but we've been brought into his palace. Where we're not just pardoned, but we've actually become family in the one royal eternal family of God. And so Paul, he, he rejoices, he's not ashamed, he's excited in this gospel. Because Paul, along with everybody who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in this room, we have been entrusted with this message. Entrusted with it, this gospel, this gospel, which is the curse reversing, death destroying, Satan crushing, sin cleansing, life giving, love forming, joy inducing, city renewing, hope giving, world changing power of God. So Paul says, no, sir, I'm not ashamed of it because it is the power of God for salvation. Thirdly, he says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is the scope of God's saving power, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. This is really a commentary in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that should ever believe in him, he might not perish, but have eternal life. What Paul is saying here is that the blood of Jesus is sufficient To save the whole world, but it's only efficient to save those who believe. That's the material cause of the reformation, by the way, that we are salvations by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. What is a saving faith? Um, Philip James already gave us such a great demonstration of it. There's no reason for me to actually illustrate it. But what we know, saving faith, it's not just what you know, it's, it's an actual personal trust. All right, so whether if you're trusting that seat that you're sitting on right now, you know what it means to trust. As our good friend H. B. Charles, who's spoken to us a few times, as he said that uh, if you ever been to the doctor and, and you know and he tells you that you need to take this or have this surgery, you know what it means to have trust. If you ever had an attorney defend you in court, you know what it means to trust. Uh, having faith is trusting in someone different than you, complete reliance upon that person to do those things which you can't do for yourself. So applying this to the gospel, we are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to be the only doctor to save our sin-sick souls and to plead our case before a just and holy God. We are trusting our life in that. That's what it means. Now, as others have said, how much faith are we talking here? Because that's a very important question, right? Just a little bit and all you got is the answer. You might have a mustard seed of faith. That's okay. Give it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not trusting in our works. We're not trusting in Jesus plus our works. We're not trusting in our capabilities or our abilities or our good intentions. We are trusting Christ alone through faith alone, by grace alone. This is a gift so that no man can boast unless they're boasting in the Lord. And it's also this gift that Paul makes the point that God has given to every single person. And what what that tells us is that this no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Another way that we often are ashamed of the gospel is when, is when we think that we're too bad for it. Oh, you don't know what I've done. The gospel, I'm, I'm too bad for that gospel. Or we think the gospel is too good for other people, like our brother Jonah, right? But Paul is saying that faith is the great leveler. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no one better or worse than anybody else. We're all condemned before God. We all fall short of his glory. But this gift, this grace extends to whoever will believe. Everyone is invited to cling to the cross. Paul is not saying that every single person will be saved. He's saying every type of person will be saved. The Democrat, the Republican the Jew, the Greek, every ethnic group, people from every ethnic group, the rich, the poor, the sick, the the healthy, the Pharisee, the murderer, the sexual sinner, the addict, the outcast, the outcast Jesus Christ embraces and in the ruined he restores is the good news of the gospel. So Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who share this great news. Because gospel saving sinners is not contingent upon race, background, education level, where you're from in the city. And it has the ability to form new communities of people who once hated each other because of their shared commonality of being saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. This is the good news that we need to hear, that our children need to hear, that our parents need to hear, that our neighbors need to hear. Paul says, do not be ashamed of the gospel for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Next, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it reveals the righteousness of God. This is why this is the power of God, because it reveals the righteousness of God. This is why the gospel is a stick of dynamite, brothers and sisters, because it reveals the righteousness of God. Now, what is Paul saying when he refers to the righteousness of God? There is so much debate about this phrase because it can mean a certain different things. But first off, it can refer to God's character. God is righteous in all of his ways, scripture tells us. It can refer to his law, his righteous law. A righteous God demands a righteous people and his holy law is the standard by which every person will be judged. It can also refer to his saving action. I believe Paul is talking about all three of those things right here. In summary, this is what Paul is saying, that God in his grace is both the just and the justifier. He's referring to, to, to God's saving action of taking unrighteous people like us and making us righteous in his righteous son. And we tap into this not by achieving it or earning it, but simply through faith alone in Christ It's this point that most people find the gospel offensive because, did you hear it? There's some bad news in there. There's bad news. There's even worse news. There's good news and better news. The bad news is that every single person in the world is condemned before God. We all fall short of God's glory. Now, that is offensive to the world. The world's going to say, what are you talking? Is sin even a real word anymore? I'm not sinful. In my truth, I'm doing just fine. My conscience is clear. We'll hear things like that. But we know the truth. If anybody has a clear conscience, they just have a terrible memory. All of us know down deep in our hearts, no matter if they're a Christian or not, that there's something wrong with us, that we're guilty of something. We feel that. It's what Paul says. We're all condemned before the Lord. The even worse news is that no person can do anything about that. Now Now, that's offensive to religious people. What are you talking about? I'm a good guy. I mean, I can see how you're talking about those people over there. But me, I pay my taxes. I'm even early paying my taxes. My kids are going to the right school. They're doing so well at soccer. We volunteer at church and in the soup kitchen. Are you kidding me? I mean, I was the greeter at the, the service. I even brought, I woke up early, went to Gibson's and brought donuts back over to the Sunday school. What do you mean I'm, I'm not good enough? Paul says, it doesn't matter what you do. We're, we're all condemned before the Lord. Here's the good news. What God demands, he also supplies. What we could not do in our own church, he does in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the even better news. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved now and forever by God's sovereign grace. Romans 8, 1, there is now nor there ever be condemnation for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Standing in his righteousness, nothing could ever separate you from the love of God. How could we possibly sit on that? That is the good news, which has changed the world. This gospel is unparalleled. That's why Paul uses that word revealed because you and I never would have thought of this. We never would have found it. We never even would have dreamed of it had God not revealed this. In church, he's revealed it in a powerful way. Psalm 85 verse 10 says, the love and the faithfulness and the justice and the peace of God kiss. And that kiss took place at the hill of Calvary. Where God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is a stick of dynamite to a world that needs to hear good news. And Paul says, no, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm eager to share it. I can't wait to share it. Lastly, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the word of God affirms it as it is written. Verse 17, as it is written, Paul is saying, this is in the spirit of the Reformation. Verse 17 is kind of a affirmation of sola scriptura, you know, scripture alone. You see that in verse 17. What Paul is saying here is that salvation, our basis for security is not based on how we feel. It's not based on what we think or what other people say or tradition dictates. Our salvation is based in the security of what God says in His Word, because His Word is the only good news we can trust. As it is written, the just, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul is saying also that this isn't plan B. This gospel, it's not a novelty, friends. I didn't make this up. This is not human invention. From the beginning to the end, it's always been that the just shall live by faith. And to prove it, he goes all the way back to the Old Testament to Habakkuk. <laughs> a minor prophet with a major message where the question was not how do righteous people live, but rather how do sinners become righteous by faith. To be a Christian, anybody can believe in God. To be a Christian is to trust what God says and to trust your life to it. And what Paul and Habakkuk tell us is that the righteous live by faith. And every verse and every page in the rest of the Bible tells us that that is the good news that we can trust. That God became man and the son, his son, Lord Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross as our substitute, but rose from the dead three days later. Where now he stands in utter perfection for me and for you and for everybody else. And whoever might have faith in him, faith in him alone, are forgiven forever washed white as a little Christ. And Paul says, when that gospel discovers you, not when you find it, when it finds you, you will boast in it. That's what happened to Paul. Paul. And that's what happened to Martin Luther. Martin Luther before October, 1517 was a miserable wretch, a tormented soul. As a monk, he did everything possible that the Roman church said that he had to do to be right with God to no avail. He had no hope, no peace in Pauline terms. He was ashamed of the gospel. He hated the gospel. He couldn't see any hope in it. He just saw the justice of God and felt like he was being crushed, but God in his mercy and his grace and providence, uh, Martin Luther was commissioned to teach through Romans. And through his study, he didn't make it out of the first chapter before verses 16 and 17 awakened him to the power of the gospel. And this is what he said by reading verses 16 and 17. By the spirit of God, I understood finally that the righteous shall live by faith. I felt born again and I entered the open doors into the very paradise of God. The gospel changed him And it ended up changing the world. You and I are beneficiaries of that conversion moment. Next week, we get to celebrate the Reformation where we are going to praise God that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. We get to do that together. But Martin Luther and the Apostle Paul are testimony of what happens when God's people are not ashamed of the gospel. Friends, may we, By God's grace, never be ashamed. We have every reason not to. We're even about to sing it. Our sure foundation. The only question is do we believe it? By God's grace, let it be so. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you. We're so grateful for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which tells us yes, in fact, we are sinners with no hope in ourselves, but in your grace. You have loved us and saved us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray as those united to Christ, we might day by day become more and more like him and bold in the gospel, that we might boast in it, that everybody might know the saving power of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.